Great. So uh, here we are in the second to last one. So we've done Matthew and Mark. Now we're on Luke. So we've only got one left after this, which is cool. Um, yeah, so Luke is, when we did the first week and we kind of went round and everyone talked about their favorite gospel, Luke was quite un- disproportionately favored, I remembered. A lot of people chose Luke as their favorite one. I, I wonder if, maybe I'm wrong, I wonder if there's kind of a more of a familiarity with Luke because we've been speaking, well, we've been going through it as a church for the last year and a half. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, I hope so. I hope there's some familiarity with it um, because we're, yeah, we're going to get into a bit more. I think that tonight might have some of the most practical relevance for us because, as I say, we are working our way through this book together. And I think it's important, I mean, even just saying that, that we have kind of a good philosophy of, of sermon series is, as a church, that they're not just what the preachers go on about, but they're what we as a church feel God is speaking to us at the moment. So I think it's really good when we are going through a book of the Bible to actually be spending time in that book in our own time. And so I'm quite looking forward to getting into Luke tonight, because I think some of the stuff we'll talk about tonight will help to kind of clarify some of those things that we get to on a Sunday. But um, as usual, first I just want to hand over to you guys to chat in your groups. Um, So I'd just like you to talk about what stands out about Luke uh, for you. Um, What features do you notice? What topics do you notice? Is there anything you particularly like? Anything you notice that's different from the others? Um, And as I've already mentioned it, why not, if there is something that you've taken from Luke since we've been preaching through it, or something from the sermon series that you've particularly taken, why not bring that to the table as well? So if I kind of give you 10 minutes, but yeah, just chat amongst yourselves, what is it about Luke that stands out to you? Awesome. Great, well let's um, have a bit of a brief bio of Luke, the man, the myth, the evangelist. Um, So I think it's important that we kind of get how important a figure Luke really is. So we, we probably all know who wrote most of the New Testament, Was it Luke? Thank you for, for falling into the trap I was hoping you'd fall into. Everyone, okay, sorry, Nisa, you were too right. Everyone always says that it's Paul, and actually you were right. Um, I, was, I was hoping people would fall into the trap, but then you, you sprung the trap. Um, <laughs> um, yes, Paul wrote numerically the most books, but they're considerably smaller. Um, and Luke actually wrote just under a third of the New Testament. And, and if you, like I do, think that it was Luke that wrote down the book of Hebrews, then that pushes it to even, that pushes it to about 32.5% of the New Testament is from Luke. So he's a, he's a pretty big guy for us understanding our faith, really. He's quite an important person. And there's a, there's a few reasons why that really stands out. Is because, as was mentioned, he's a Gentile. He's the only... Gentile writer of scripture. So something interesting happens when you turn to Luke because you've gone from Jewish people talking about Jewish things happening in a Jewish way in every other book, then you turn to Luke, and then suddenly it's very different. There's a big shift. And we'll see how that comes out a bit later on when we look at some of the themes in Luke because it does play a big role. But so he's a Gentile. He was a, clearly a very early follower of Jesus. He wrote his gospel around 50, 52, 55. So he must have been involved in this movement um, earlier than that. I don't, think he, 
I don't think he was converted by writing his gospel. He probably thought it was necessary to write it um, a few years later. So very early getting involved in this movement of following this Jesus fellow. Uh, we, we see in Acts that he was a fellow traveler with Paul, so he would have gone on Paul's missionary journeys. If you've read Acts before, you'll notice that from about chapter 16, it changes from a third-person plural, they did this, to then a first-person plural, we did this, and then we went here, and then we went there. So Luke was actually there with Paul on the journey. Um, he's a physician. Luke um, is mentioned by Paul in the book of Colossians as being a physician, so, and, and you see some of those, that kind of doctorness coming out in his gospel. So there's a really interesting thing. The, the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law early on in the gospel accounts. Uh, in, the, in Luke's writing, he actually references, if you know anything about um, medicine, the history of medicine, Galen, one of the big histories, uh, dominant figures in the history of medicine, Luke actually describes her fever using the, uh, the, taxo- the taxonomy that Galen produced. So it seems as though he's actually, it's almost like he's giving a diagnosis, whereas the others just say, oh, she had a fever. Um, so that seems to come out, and, and that probably is why a lot of his work reads, like, as Poe said, a bit like a statement. This is the kind of thing that he does for a living. And I think the last thing to say, and I think it's related to that, is that he is clearly a, a brilliant historian. Now, it's, it's quite funny that we have the freedom to say that today because um, there, was a, there was a particular highlighted period. We can kind of point to the years between 1895 and, 18, uh, and 1915, so about 20 years, where there was a big move in scholarship and academia to basically say, Luke is one of the worst historians we've ever seen. He, he mentions uh, titles and roles in cities which don't exist. He mentions places which were never there. He talks about journeys being, you know, this long and they're not. And so widely, there's a guy called Alfred, uh, Alfred von Harnack, who was a very, if you, if you read any book on kind of New Testament theology, they, he will be quoted. He was a very dominant figure in, um, in theology. And he hated Luke. He just thought this guy's rubbish. And basically, what happened was, a little bit of archaeology here, a little bit of archaeology there. Oh, this is that thing that Luke mentioned. Oh, this is that thing that Luke mentioned. Oh, the towns that he mentioned, we were thinking of the wrong one, actually. And so little by little, things have been put together. So nowadays, you find most scholars saying, Luke is a very good theologian. And it's just funny how that perception has just completely shifted. And unfortunately, we're not going to talk about it today, but it means like if you know what I'm talking about, then that, that's great, but if you don't, I can explain it later. But issues like the census that Luke mentions in Luke 2, which if you find any kind of atheist book dissing the New Testament, this will be one of the first things they jump to. People don't have the freedom to just say, oh, Luke got it wrong. He's an able historian, and he seems to really bring in his, uh, his credentials into what he does. So that's kind of Luke the man. Um, so very dominant figure. So let's look at, let's kind of get into his gospel. So first we're going to kind of do what we did with Mark, look at the structures, what he's talking through the structures, and then we'll go into some of the features that come out. So the first thing I wanted to look at is the intro. Now, I only noticed once they were all printed that I've put a typo on the handout where it says, what the intro tell us about Luke's gospel? Sorry about that. So I say, what does the intro tell us about Luke's gospel? But um, I just thought, if I, if I read this, I'd... I'd do, do dialogue with me, otherwise there'll be tumbleweeds and there'll be silence. But um, if I just read this and then just say, what do you notice comes out of this intro? So 
You open Luke and it says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What strikes you from that introduction? What do you think Luke might be, uh, what features are you going to expect in this gospel from that intro? Yeah, factual. Where are you getting that from? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, and, and he seems to acknowledge that he doesn't think he's the first person to have done this gospel. You know, many have undertaken this. Um, so it's not like Luke's kind of saying, why is there no stories about Jesus written down for anyone? But Luke is kind of going, there's a lot, as you say very well there, Poe, there's a lot of noise. So let's try and filter out that noise. And, and it seems pretty obvious from the amount he uses it that Luke is using Matthew and Mark. So clearly he thinks that these ones are good witnesses accounts but and there are multiple gospels from the first century most of them haven't survived but so yeah Luke clearly is thinking some of these are good some of these are bad let me go and do some investigating cool anything else yes yeah one more and then I'll Jump in if there's anything else. Yeah? <laughs> yes. And also being a doctor, he probably had terrible handwriting. <laughs> yes. So that is, that's great. The first thing I wanted to just point out is that this is the only gospel that we actually know the recipient, Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is a name is a bit suspect because it literally means lover of God. So there is a view where people say Theophilus is probably like a generic character. He's not a real person. This is just, it'd be like if I said, um, dear lover of God, I've written this to you. So it's just kind of like for whoever loves God and picks it up and reads it. I, I am not particularly convinced by that because it is a common name. Um, and there's some stylistic things that I would say point to this being to a real person. In the ancient world, it's not uncommon. If you think about it, nowadays we have paper. Paper's very cheap, very easy, it's very easy to come by. In the ancient world, everything's done on lambskin. It's blooming expensive. It's hard to come across. And so normally, a very wealthy person would sponsor the writing of a book that's for their benefit. So if you were to pick up, for instance, Josephus's Jewish War, you find that that is dedicated to Flavius, who's a, a Roman senator who has paid for him to write a story of the, of the Jewish war for him. So I, I think that Theophilus is a real person, a specific person, and for reasons that I will talk about when we get to Acts, I actually think he's someone with some power. I think he potentially could be a Roman senator. So I think that 
and, and again, there's that. As with all these things, there's always more that we could unpack. We could spend the whole evening talking about Theophilus and identifying him, and I'm not going to fall down the rabbit hole. But so I'm just going to go ahead and say I think he's a real person. I think he's a Roman senator. I think Luke has been commissioned by him to write this book. I don't think that that means necessarily that Luke is writing what Theophilus wants to hear. I do. Th- so, so, for instance, Josephus writes lots of things which clearly his Roman benefactors don't want to hear, but he thinks this is part of what it means to write an honest account. So I think that Luke is writing this book for a particular person. And as I say, I think he's a Roman with some power. So that's the first thing I'd want to draw out. The other thing we've kind of already talked about is the fact that this is an orderly account. Now, I don't think that means chronological. We've, we've talked about before how Luke is, is free, as any of us are, when he's recording the history to, to put things in a different order to highlight certain themes. But it's orderly in that there is a rhythm to it. There is a theme going through it. There is something that Luke is trying to get to. It's not just like, a, oh, and then this happened. Oh, and then this happened, and then this happened. It's, it's orderly, but orderly doesn't mean chronological. So he does have freedom. So we saw, uh, I think it was the first week that we looked at the fact that the Nazareth sermon that he gives in the synagogue references something which doesn't happen until a few verses later. And clearly Lucas swapped them around to make a point. So I think, I think that's, that's perfectly fine, though. That's, that is orderly, it's just not chronological. And I just highlighted a few sentences here as well, something that we talked about. Many have undertaken to draw up an account, so he knows the kind of pools that he's stepping into, the water he's stepping into. Uh, stuff has been handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. So the people who actually saw and experienced these things are Luke's sources. Uh, he has decided to investigate carefully everything and the point of this is so that Theophilus may have certainty of the things he has heard. So Luke is basically, it's in his best interest to be as accurate as possible. I mean, one of the things that I, I love about that is basically whenever you're reading about someone's emotions or thoughts or what they went through in Luke, I think you can actually think that Luke got this from sitting down with them and asking. Like, just think about this. When it says, and Mary treasured up all these things in her heart, how did Luke didn't know that? Go to Acts 1, Mary is there with the apostles. I think Luke actually sat down with Mary. What was it like, you know, when those shepherds turned up to worship Jesus? And I, I think she could tell him, it, you know, it was incredible, and I just treasured those things up. And So I think there's a real kind of personalness about Luke's gospel, which I really love about it. It's not just, oh, and I've heard this and I've heard that. He's investigated carefully. I think there's good reason to trust him. And the last thing I'd say about Luke's gospel, uh, or Luke's intro, rather, is... Uh, it reads like an intro to a great work in, in, the, in the Greek classical world. So we saw with Matthew, for instance, that he begins in a very Jewish style by talking about a genealogy. John's gospel begins um, by, you know, in the beginning was the word, that reference back to Genesis, very theological, again, very Jewish. Mark, as we saw, just goes straight in, Jesus turned up, did this. Luke kind of starts by talking like how the great writers of his day would open their writings. So if, if you do have the big book um, by Strauss, he's actually got a little, um, a little figure where he shows some of the writings from Josephus and just compares how Luke's intro looks a lot like some of the writings from someone like Josephus. I think that's really interesting because it kind of shows you that Luke 
isn't trying to pretend to be a Jew because he's joined this Jewish movement. He's still very much a Gentile. He's writing as himself. So that's, that, I think, tells us some features that we're expecting as we go into this gospel. We're expecting it to be orderly. We, we know that this is for Theophilus. He's including things which I think, it's not, as I say, it's not that he's writing what Theophilus wants to hear, but he knows what he he knows what he wants Theophilus to know, if that makes sense. You know, um, I'm not going to try and think of an analogy off the top of my head because I'll, I'll butcher it, but um, whenever we kind of you know, tell a story to someone, we only include the bits that they need to know, really. So let's look at the structure of Luke. And I think the structure of Luke is quite helpful for understanding some of the purposes as well, which is why I think it would be good to spend a bit of time in this. So we start with the intro which is um, the first, I'd say, two chapters in, in, in total. So, and this is kind of the prologue. This is where the identity of Jesus starts to come out for us as readers. The audience don't know who he is yet, but we're being told. So the key themes are his supernatural origins. There's that virgin birth scene. There's, now, there's no wise men in Luke, but there are shepherds who stand on the mountain, uh, on, on the hills, and then they, they come down to him. You have the, uh, ah, yes. This is a big part of it as well. Jesus is bringing a big change to Israel. Now, why do I say that? Where do I get that in the first two chapters? Let me just read a section for you from N.T. Wright. I think this is really good. So N.T. Wright says this. When John begins his work with the words, in the beginning, we know that he is imitating the start of Genesis. When Matthew opens with the book of the generation, we know that he is evoking a regular link phrase, again, from Genesis. But what is Luke up to? His formal and rounded prologue evokes the literary openings of several works from the Greek period, including, interestingly, two of Josephus' books. He is intending this book to be placed not in the first instance within the Jewish biblical world, but within the general world of serious Greek writing, not least history writing. Now, just listen to this bit. I think this is great. As soon as this intention is announced, however, Luke leads us off to a small corner of the Greek world and introduces us, like Shakespeare, beginning a play with a pair of minor characters to Elizabeth and Zechariah. So if you hear what he's saying there, he's saying Luke starts the book by kind of presenting us as this great Greek history book. We're about to tell you something amazing. And then as soon as it starts, they go off into a little corner of the world in, you know, in, out in the backwater in the rural, rural town where we meet an old man and his barren wife. It's kind of this stark contrast as we go from just amazing story I'm going to tell you for you, Theophilus, you know, the Roman senator, to then let me tell you about two peasants. Now, the reason I, I want to bring that up under the heading of Jesus is bringing, bringing, a, bringing a big change to Israel is because what I think Luke is doing in these first two chapters is reminding us of the story of 1 Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel, one of my favorite books in the Bible, in the Old Testament at least. It's, I just, I think it's brilliant. But if you think about the way it starts, it's about a couple of people, Elkanah and Hannah, who live out in the, in the desert. They're peasants in Israel. And Hannah is longing for a baby, desperate for a baby. They go to the temple. She prays to God. She comes back and she conceives and this child is dedicated to God. And this child, and she sings this amazing song about all the things that God is going to do through this child and, and how he's answered her and how he's shamed the wise and, and raised up the simple. 
And then this child, Samuel, goes on to be this great prophet for Israel, and he is the one who brings in, welcomes in the king of kings in Israel's history, that is, David. You think about the way that Luke starts the story, two peasants out in the desert, a wife who's not had children. This time the husband is the one who goes into the temple and prays. And then this boy is born who's told he's going to be this great prophet. I think Luke is on, is on purpose showing us the story of one Samuel. And there's a few things along the way which really link in. So you think about the songs that sing. So Hannah has this, has this child and she sings this incredible song. Zachariah finds out he's going to be a father, sings this incredible song. Mary finds out she's going to give birth and she sings a song. And, and I would just challenge you to read Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. And then read Mary's song in Luke 2 and tell me that they are not related. I mean, my goodness, it seems that Mary has just been reading that song the day before. I mean, I, th- I think this is a, you know, I'm going into sermon mode now, but clearly Mary has been soaking in God's word, really getting to know it, so that when the Spirit of God has come upon her, when something incredible has happened in her life, she just sings out the scripture that she knows and she finds that she is now in that same position that, that was in beforehand. So I Again, just to apologize for the preaching mode, but I think that's a real call to be soaking ourselves in the scripture because when the spirit does move and something happens and we find that we're in the story too, don't we just want to respond the way that God's people have responded throughout the ages? Anyway, let's, let's go back into Luke. So these first two chapters are, I think, really highlighting that kind of one Samuel connection and they're telling us that this great prophet is arising and the king is coming. So John is like the Samuel and if John is the Samuel... What does that say about Jesus? It says that he's the David. So I think that's a a big part in those early chapters. And the other thing I'd say is that the Abrahamic promises are being fulfilled. Now we're going to talk about this more later, but I think they're some of the key themes in those first two chapters. Who Jesus is, his supernatural origins, the change that is about to happen in Israel, that one Samuel setting, and then the Abrahamic promise being fulfilled. Now, the second slot, you should know well, because we spent a year preaching through it, and we called it Seeing Jesus. So, I'm, I'm going I'm to be brave now. Can anyone tell me some of the key themes in this big section up to chapter 9 in, in this Seeing Jesus section? I mean, yeah, that, that, that is a, I, I should have, I didn't include that, I should have done though, but yeah, the kingdom of God is a, is a very big theme in these early chapters. I should also say, I realize it's not fair looking for one specific answer when there are multiple good, true answers. For that reason, I'm actually just going to move on because I think it's not fair. Um, but we called it Seeing Jesus because one of the big themes in these early chapters up to chapter 9 is it seems that that's the question that everyone is asking. Who, who is this? He does this here, and someone says, oh, he did this incredible healing. Who is he? Is he a, is he a prophet? He does this here, and someone says, oh, my goodness, he's a miracle worker. Is he the new Moses? And you just have all these people asking, who is this person? And then the end of the section, I think, really comes where Peter, well, Jesus asks Peter specifically, who do you say I am? You know, everyone's had an opinion about me. You've been with me and you've seen all of them. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, 
you're, you're God's Messiah. And at that point, story changes. He moves on to Jerusalem. It's like this is the big crescendo of this section. Who is this Jesus? He's God's Messiah. So some of the big themes in this starts with the, that Nazareth Manifesto. I should include the one I just talked about. Who is this Jesus? The Nazareth Manifesto is that sermon that Jesus gives where he lays out who he is. He's the servant of God with the Spirit upon him. Um, and one of the other big themes we see in this section is that the outsiders see, they see who Jesus is, while the insiders seem to miss it. So you have like the story of the centurion who gets what's going on and, and he repents and turns to Jesus. You get the story of the widow whose son has died and, and, and she gets drawn in. You get my favorite story, the story of the woman with the issue of blood and she is the one who goes from being an outcast to then being brought in and, and, and really shown love by Jesus. So that's some of the big themes in this Galilean uh, ministry period. And then we do what we're doing at the moment, what we're preaching through at the moment, is that journey to Jerusalem. Now, Luke's journey to Jerusalem is significantly longer than any of the, any of the, the Gospels. And a lot of the material that we find in the journey to Jerusalem does appear in other places in the Gospels, but it doesn't look like it's part of that journey. Now, Jesus could have repeated himself, that's all well and good. But I wonder if Luke is kind of stylistically doing this. Kind of these are relevant to that climax of he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's set his face towards his death. Because Jerusalem is where the prophets go to die. Uh, you know, Jesus, Jesus says in, in this section, um, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and those who are sent to you. And he, he says quite explicitly, does a prophet ever die outside of Jerusalem? So it seems that Jesus knows that he's going there to die, and it's almost fitting that he needs to die there. You know, if he, if he died anywhere else, is he truly a prophet? But obviously in that as well, there is a judgment because Jerusalem shouldn't be the place where the prophets get killed. It should be the place where they get heard and accepted. Yes? Yeah, 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 go, yeah of course. Most of the prophets who were martyred, most of the martyrs in the Old Testament were killed in Jerusalem. Uh, so if you go through something like the Book of Kings, it seems that anyone who's right gets their life sought after and often dies. Yeah. Um, not necessarily the case, because we do have prophets being killed in the Northern Kingdom, but it's kind of an, ironi it's, it's kind of an irony, really, because it's like Jerusalem is supposed to be the center of holiness, and instead, Jesus is kind of painting it as, well, it's like when the New Testament writers refer to Jerusalem as Babylon. It's like this, you know, it's like this, the two, it's like saying something like a crooked cop. Two adjectives and a noun that's not supposed to go together. Jerusalem is supposed to be the place where God's name dwells. Instead, it is the place where God's people are killed. So it's almost like symbolic that that has to be the place where the prophet par excellence dies. Um, now, one of the other things, and we're seeing this a lot at the moment in our sermon series, in this section, is the, the whole point about um, the, this imminent judgment coming on Israel. So, 
it, it kind of, at least for me as a kind of sermon writer, it feels a little bit like we're in the weeds at the moment with this, every passage is Jesus condemning Jerusalem, condemning Israel, and it's getting more and more intense. And it's part of this journey, really, part of this route to Jerusalem, and, he, and this is where it really starts to heighten. Now, Jerusalem and the temple kind of complex and the priesthood, they don't really get mentioned very much in the early chapters. It's once Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem that they start to come more and more and more common. The judgments become more and more and more specific till you get to chapter uh, 21, for instance. And this is, as I said this before, this is a passage that often gets confused as though Jesus is talking about the end of the world, but he, he makes some specific comments about Jerusalem being destroyed. And it's as though everything that he's been saying up till this point has led to this crescendo where he is saying this the place where God's name is supposed to dwell is now going to be utterly destroyed it's like that the height of that anti-Jewish uh, not anti-Jewish sorry anti-Jerusalem sentiment and then the last kind of key theme in this section is this concept of what I call kind of the gospel of the outcast it's where you get a lot of parables about the person who was lost being found person who was out being in um, and it goes back to the things that Mary talks about in her song where she talks about the rich having going away empty but the but the hungry being filled it, it, and where we start to see that theme really coming out and then lastly the climax this is the kind of the, that last section this is where Jesus is put on trial well first he's hailed as a king and then a few verses later he's now being tried as a revolutionary it boggles the mind, but I think that is the fickleness of human nature, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so this is the section where we see him welcomed as a king, put on trial as a revolutionary, murdered, and then raised from the dead, vindicated by God. And Luke has the most detailed resurrection account. Matthew talks about him appearing to them, and then they come and worship him on the mountain, and he gives them the great commission. Luke's is the only one that actually includes the ascension. It's interesting that none of the others actually specifically mention it. Um, but uh, Luke has that fantastic story where the, the disciples are on the road to Emmaus and then Jesus appears and they don't realize it's Jesus. And he, and he, I just love how it says that he unpacks the scriptures for, the, for them and shows that it's all about him. I, I, I just imagine being there and you know, listening to that sermon from Jesus, being told how all of the Bible points to him. It's like, I want that lesson. So, uh, yeah, there's the, they're the kind of the big things. The, and, and, and this is a good point, actually. The, unlike all the others, well, not unlike all the others, more than all the others, I would say, the innocence of Jesus is really pointed out in this section in Luke. Uh, the word innocent is used something like three times more than any of the Gospels. He's found innocent by Pilate specifically in Luke's Gospel. It's the only one that actually says that. So this is like the, the big theme in this section is the innocent one is dying. He's been going to Jerusalem, condemning them for their guilt. But rather than them being destroyed, he is. In the resurrection, you have that whole theme of God has vindicated his servant. The one who is innocent has now been shown to be innocent. And then that last section is that this message is to be taken to all the nations. And that kind of gets taken on into Acts, and we'll look at that in a second. Um, we started kind of 10 minutes late, 10 past. Does, we've got kind of, strictly speaking, 10 minutes until 9. Are we happy to kind of go till quarter to 9 just so we can? Is that? Okay. Okay, cool. Well, in that case, we'll do a bit of group work. Um, <laughs> I, 
I think this would be a bit fun, but it might not be. We'll, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> it, it, that's the best way to sell something, isn't it? Might be fun, might not be. So there is a passage in Luke that is unique to Luke. So if you open with me to Luke 16, this is the only gospel that includes this story. And it is the bane of preachers. I remember sitting in uh, when my dad was preaching on this verse, because my dad was an Anglican vicar, if you didn't know. And uh, he mem- I remember him explaining, this is in the, in the lectionary for this week. This is in the rotation. I have to preach on this. I don't really know what to say. And I remember as I kind of, I must have been about 12, sat there thinking, I've never heard my dad say that at the beginning of a sermon. So we're going to try and crack it. So I'm going to read the parable of the shrewd manager, and then I'd just like us to talk in our groups for five minutes. What on earth is going on in this parable? So, it says this, Luke 16, verses 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accusing, uh, who had accused him of wasting his possessions. Oh, sorry, let me go Let There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 liters of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing in their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Okay, I'm going to stop there. So does everyone see the the problem in that story? (laughs) His manager basically steals from his manager and then he gets commended for it. So five minutes in your groups. What do you think is going on there? And then afterwards, I'll explain wh- what I think is going on there, but you don't have to be convinced because I'm not sure I am. So, five minutes. Nice. Well, I think we've all uh, wrestled with this, uh, and, and, I, and I would say I, I, I wouldn't be confident enough to say that I think there's any interpretations which I would say are wrong or right. I think it's a very tricky passage. I mean, the thing that is so tricky is that it's not just that the guy does these things and it says, you know, and it all turned out well. It says that the master actually commends him because he has mucked around with things which weren't his. And the master, it seems to me, in this parable is, is God. Um, so the, the view that, just to kind of give a view, which I, th- I think works, is so Calvin's, um, doesn't, probably doesn't surprise you to hear me say that I think Calvin's right on this one, um, tentatively. So Calvin basically says that what's going on here is similar to, to what you guys said. This is showing, because it says in, in the, the verse at the end, the people of this world are more shrewd with dealing in their own kind than other people of the light. So Calvin's comment basically here is, if you're not a believer, the most valuable thing that you can pursue is money. That is the best thing. And you see that people will do whatever they can to pursue their highest goal. 
So Calvin basically says the point of this parable is, what Jesus is saying is, if you are in the people of light, then the highest thing that you can possibly value is God. And getting into the kingdom, you know, be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So the point is, if they're that shrewd to go after things which are the most valuable to them, how shrewd should we be to go after the things which lead us to God? So in other words, what it's saying is, down to, you know, till you're fighting to the bone, fight for the most valuable thing in the world. I'm not sure it deals with everything in there, but there's a lot of confusing things in that uh, passage. I mean, Luke 16 is a notoriously kind of it's a minefield of a chapter because you move on from there to then Jesus saying um, everyone is forcing their way into the kingdom of heaven then he says anyone who divorces his wife marries another woman commits adultery with no qualification and then he says the story about the rich man and Lazarus and everyone always talks about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus Jesus doesn't call it a parable he just tells a story about two people who go to the afterlife so it's kind of a notoriously difficult chapter and I just kind of wanted to yeah, dip our toes in there for a bit, but I hope that was uh, enjoyable, and uh, I'll be getting one of you to preach on it when we get to Luke 16. No, <laughs> of course not. You don't have to worry, Ben. It's you. <laughs> Great. Okay, so let's look at some of the themes and purposes in, in Luke. Um, we won't take too long on this, because I am aware of the, the time, and there's only really one thing I want to highlight, and that, well, we talked about this already. Luke is the only Gentile of the New Testament, the only one writing scripture. What do you think is going to be such an important theme, not just important in terms of I need to know this, but precious to him, except the fact that he is a Gentile, is welcomed as a full citizen in the people of God, doesn't have to be circumcised, doesn't have to do this or that, he's just welcomed in through faith. And you bear in mind, Luke is a traveling partner of Paul. He's probably heard, you know, you read about Galatians 2 where Paul is absolutely adamant with Peter. We do not divide between Jew and Gentile. We are all one in Christ Jesus. He's probably heard Paul talking about the Jerusalem council where, Paul, you know, where Peter stood the line and said, no, nope, Gentiles are, are, are part of us too. Luke's probably heard all these things. He's probably got a lot of his theology from Paul. So when he starts to do all this eyewitness talking and realize that it's not original to Paul, but it's actually from Jesus... You can imagine that this becomes really precious to him because the person he's now calling his Lord and Master actually was welcoming him in long before. So I think that more than any of the other Gospels, Luke clings on to this theme of Gentiles and outsiders being brought in because it is so personal to him and so personal to Theophilus. Bear in mind, he is a Roman. The Israelites hate the Romans, he's a Roman senator. What could be worse? And now he's reading this book. He's reading stories about his centurions and people who are in, a part of his nation being welcomed in. I think that's got to be so precious for them. So the, the, one of the things I'd want to say on that, in that regard is that we talked about when we did Matthew, how Matthew seems to focus on this concept of the true Israel. So you have Israel, and most of them are being unfaithful, but within Israel, there's a kind of uh, this true body gathering together. It's only a slight distinction, but I would say that I think Luke focuses more on the new Israel. Now, I don't necessarily mean they're two different things. Uh, hopefully, this analogy helps. I think if you think about like an engaged couple, well, this, would be, this is very close to home for you, Mike. An engaged couple becoming a married couple. In one sense, 
you could talk about the new relationship that they've entered into, that, that kind of something definitive has changed as they've moved from just being engaged to now actually starting a life together, and now the wedding anniversary becomes the main date, not the day they started going out. So you can look at that from that perspective, or you could focus on how this is now the consummation and the, and the realization of all the, all the relationship previously. So you could focus on the fact that this is really the organic growth of what they already had. Both of those things are true at the same time. It's just a slightly different emphasis. So you could talk about the big change that happened, or you could talk about the trueness of you know, the, the unity. We started going up back then, and now it's brought us to a place where we're married. I think for Matthew, he's more focusing on that kind of unity, the true Israel being brought out. I think for Luke, he's focusing on that true Israel, Gentiles and tax collectors and sinners are now constituting God's people. I think that's a really big thing for him. So some of the the ways I think we can see that is, so Andy just preached yesterday about the narrow door passage. Now, we probably know that passage quite well from Matthew 7. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Wide is the door that leads to destruction. And that's often taken as a kind of a proof text to have this view that it's going to be like 100 people in heaven at the end of the world. And, you know, everyone else is going to hell. And I'm not sure that's what's going on at all. Because when you read in Luke, Jesus is actually talking to his audience, saying, I was in your streets, I healed among you. You will be shut out, but many will come from north, east, south, and west, and they will come and recline at the table. So he's not talking about, in all times and all places, there'll be this tiny number of people saved. He's saying, for the generation that has heard me, they will be shut out while multitudes will come in. The true Israel, the new Israel will come in. So I think there's a slight difference there, and it's just coming from their different emphases. Matthew is writing to Jewish audiences. Luke is writing to Gentile audiences. So I think that's, that's why the difference. Um, stories like the prodigal son as well. The prodigal son is only found in Luke. Now, when most people read the prodigal son, they, we, I mean, we had a fantastic sermon on that at New Day, didn't we, Joseph? And he did the classic thing where he cuts off the ending because we like the story, the son gets home. But what about the older brother? What's going on there? Now that bit doesn't preach as well, but you think about that. You have these two people. One goes off from God and are far away and they do all these kind of things and they eat from pigs. Who's going to be in the Jewish mind? They eat with pigs. This is talking about Gentiles. But then there's one who stayed and they were quote-unquote faithful And when that far-off one now comes home, the father honors them seemingly more than the one who stayed, and they complain, I've been here the whole time. I think what's going on there is this is a story about this Israel being reconstituted. The Gentiles are being brought in. Why are they being honored? You know, we've been here the whole time. We've been at the temple. We've been doing these kind of things. And I think that the, the challenge is don't despise the Gentiles who are coming in. Be happy that they are. Yeah, they were off, they were dead, but now they've been brought back to life. So I think that's a, a big theme for Luke. And as I say, I think a very personal one. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that when you read those first two chapters, you keep hearing the promise made to Abraham come up. Zechariah and Mary both sing about it. What's the promise made to Abraham? The promise made to Abraham is, I will multiply your seed, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So it's impossible for the promise to Abraham to be fulfilled and just the Jews benefit. When the promise to Abraham is fulfilled, all the nations get blessed. The Gentiles get brought in too. 
So that's a big theme in, in, in Luke. Oh, and also just think about the um, Simeon. When Simeon sees Jesus, he talks about the, the rising and falling of many in Israel and a light to the nations and a sign for the Gentiles. So he talks about Israel being restored and when that happens, in come the Gentiles. Big theme. Um, okay, Luke's genealogy. Um, does anyone know any of the differences between Luke and Matthew's genealogy? Pardon? Yes. So, so math. Yeah. So, do you mean in terms of in the story or in the genealogy itself? Yeah. Yeah. So Matthew starts from the top and works down, whereas Luke starts from the bottom and works up. Yes. But Matthew starts with Abraham and then gets down to Jesus. Luke, Jesus, up, 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 gets to Abraham, keeps going all the way back to Adam. See the difference there? Matthew is rooting Jesus' genealogy in the family of Israel. Luke is um, pinpointing Jesus' genealogy in the story of everyone who's ever lived. He goes back to Adam. Yeah. So there's a, there's a kind of a big shift there in terms of what the point of this genealogy is. He is not just the savior for the Jews. He's the savior for all um, who have been touched by Adam's sin. Now, it's not to say that Matthew doesn't like the Gentiles. That's really important to say, I think. It, they just have a different emphasis. Um, yes, so the outsiders are being brought in. We talked about this a little bit. They're being praised. They're shown to responding how the insiders should have done. That's a really big theme. When the centurion comes, you might remember the story. I mean, I, I, I preached on it probably about a year ago, so I won't blame you if you've forgotten, but the Jews come to Jesus on behalf of the centurion and they say, he's a good man, you have to come and heal him. And Jesus, you, you, you can kind of think of Jesus, I don't have to do anything. But then the centurion just comes and he just comes prostrate before Jesus and he says, I don't, I'm not even worthy of having you in my house. And Jesus says, already been done, already been healed. I think the big contrast there is those who are the elders of the people who are supposed to know this is a prophet come and just expect. Whereas the Gentile, the one who's not supposed to know how things work around here, he's the one who just says, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worthy of you. So there's a, there's a sense in which, and Paul talks about this in Romans, they're being the insiders ashamed by the outsiders. So, and, that, and that's a theme that comes up quite a lot in, um, in Luke. So, um, yeah, we talked about the... Uh, those parables, I mean, just think about the lost coin, the coin that's lost and then the woman finds it, the son that goes off and then comes back, the woman who's bleeding and then is restored by Jesus. There's this thing of God going out to the outcast, God going out to the outsider and bringing them in. Now, as I said, I've said it multiple times already, but just think for Luke how precious that is. You know, when John Newton sat down and wrote Amazing Grace, for him that's so personal because he's, he, I mean, he talked about having these the um, thousands of ghosts that follow him from when he was a slave driver, so a slave um, trader, sorry. So when he writes Amazing Grace and talks about being a wretch and to God's grace finding him, it's a very personal thing for him. I think when Luke sits down and starts to hear from people and write these stories down about what Jesus said about the outcast and those who are far off being brought near, I think, I like to imagine just Luke kind of sat there and just <laughs> needs to have a little bit of a cry before he carries on because it's, it's so personal for him.
And then lastly, there's that thing of uh, Israel's just failing to consider her own role and calling. I mean, this is the thing that we're, you know, we've preached on quite a lot in the last few weeks. They've really got to consider who they are. They're a fig tree that's not producing fruit. They're a servant that's not honoring their master, and so on and so forth. So the Jews reject while the Gentiles flow in. Now that, as a point, very naturally leads us into the book of Acts. And I, I just want to kind of finish on this. And this is important because you can't really deal with Luke without dealing with Acts. These are two books in one series. It's like you can't just read the Fellowship of the Ring without reading the Two Towers and Return of the King. You know, you need the whole story. So Luke uh, starts with that kind of message to Theophilus. This is what Jesus did amongst us. These are the things that have been fulfilled. Here's the story of Jesus. Now notice that the story ends with Jesus commissioning his disciples to now go into the nations and spread this message of uh, the forgiveness of sins that comes through repentance. And the last thing that Jesus says to them before he goes is, go into Jerusalem and wait. Then the story of Acts comes along, and Luke opens it by saying, in my previous book, I started to tell you about the things that Jesus began to do. Let me remind you how that ends. And he talks about the ascension, he talks about them receiving the Spirit, then he leads us into a book of how the story of Jesus hasn't finished but is continued through his apostles. So Luke is the necessary prelude to Acts. Acts completes the story because the gospel is not just about Jesus did some stuff, now you can be a Christian. It's Jesus started a ministry and now you are called upon to continue that ministry as he's in heaven. Now the really clever thing I think Luke is doing there is Acts isn't merely the finishing of the story. Acts is merely the part two in a part three that we are called to write. So we saw how Mark ends by basically saying, what are you going to do about it? The disciples heard he was resurrected, and then the story ends. What are you going to do? Are you going to go look for the resurrected Christ? I think Luke is saying, what are you going to do to continue the story? So, um, Acts, right? What is Acts about? It's about mission. It's about people going to Gentiles and they hear the gospel and it's about the Jews hear it, the Gentiles hear it, and everyone gets saved. What happens in Acts is really weird. You have all these references to the Holy Spirit, all these references to God doing amazing things, all these references to the apostles being obedient. Then you get to this point where Paul goes on about, I need to go back to Jerusalem. And everyone starts telling him, no, you don't. You need to be faithful to your calling and go to the Gentiles. And he goes, nope, I'm going. He goes, he gets arrested, and the rest of the book is not about mission anymore. It's about Paul on trial. And the book ends with Paul in house arrest in Rome. I think what's going on there is Luke is showing the mission has been stalled by someone following their own kind of uh, vein of thinking rather than what God is calling them to, Paul. Now, this is where I think the Theophilus thing comes in. I think Luke is writing it to Theophilus basically saying, Paul's got himself in a bit of a mix-up. You've got the power to do something about it. How are you going to continue this story? Get Paul out of prison. And I do think that Paul left Roman house arrest. I think he went to Spain, like he says that he was intending to, and then was arrested later on and taken back to Rome. But I think the Acts ends at the point it does to basically say to Theophilus, this story isn't over. You can continue this story. 
Now, the point I'd want to make is just as Luke gives it an open-ended ending for Theophilus, what are you going to do about it? I think the story of Luke and Acts is an open-ending an open-ended ending for us. Luke is the story of Jesus. Acts is the story of how his disciples were obedient. Us, how are you going to continue the story from where you are? How are you going to be the Luke Acts part three? So, as it says on the handout, Luke's gospel is the story of what Jesus did in Israel. Acts of the Apostle is what the story of the Christians did in the nations. So the big question for us from Luke is, what are you going to do where you are? What does it look like for you to be obedient and keep this story going? So let's have a quick recap before we finish because we have run over by three minutes now. Um, An overview of Luke's biography. Yes, we looked at an overview of Luke's biography, who he was and its relevance to his gospel. We saw how the intro lays out some features of the gospel. We looked at the overall structure of Luke's gospel, those four sections. And then lastly, we looked at the very central theme of salvation to the outsiders and how it plays into the book of Acts. Now, one very last point to say just on that one, one thing I forgot to point out explicitly was the theme of uh, the insiders not hearing, the outsiders hearing, that's exactly what Acts is about. We often think of the great persecutor of God's people in the first century as being Rome. Rome hadn't even killed a single Christian by the time that Acts was killed. The great persecutor in Acts is Jerusalem. The ones who were supposed to hear their Messiah kill them. And then they kill his disciples. So, that's a big theme. Anyway, I'm going to call it a day there. Uh, I hope that's been good. And so two weeks' time, we're going to look at John. It'll be the last one now. I'll just say, if you're going to be here in two weeks' time, that'd be fantastic. Please, can you read John in its entirety before we get to it? Because John is such an incredible book that I would really love to kind of have that feeling that we've all spent some time chewing over it before we get to it. So... Uh, Let me finish by praying and then we'll go to bed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Luke. We thank you for the man that he was and how he's blessed the church with what he wrote. Lord, we just pray that we would be faithful to that challenge of Luke Acts, that we would ask ourselves, how are we going to continue this story? What can we do in our settings, in our contexts? So Lord, we just pray that this story would provoke us, that we would see ourselves as the outsiders who have been brought in and find that truth to be so precious for us. So in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Cool.